You're tuned in to the Men of God Network, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. On Thursday nights, I've been teaching a number of different book studies. I started with The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. I moved into Pilgrim's Progress, and I'm taking a break from that temporarily to do the history of revivals at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, discussing such names as Edward Dorr Griffin, Asahel Nettleton. The last couple of weeks, I've been doing the history of the Kentucky Revival of 1800, and that pastor who came here from North Carolina and who was used in the revival was a man named James McGrady. So this week I am preparing a study of how did these pastors counsel awakened sinners, people that became alarmed in the revival and were in a sense of fear, and crying out, what must I do to be saved? How did they counsel them? What was the inquiring room? And in my hand, I have a book called The Old Evangelicalism, Old Truths for a New Awakening. And the author is Ian Murray. And the author is Ian Murray, at one time the editor of The Manor of Truth and assistant to Lloyd-Jones. And there's a section that I want to read out of this by John Brown of Wampray, a Scottish Puritan. But let me read a couple of paragraphs, and only a couple of paragraphs, because I don't want to violate the copyright, but I do want to give you the context. This chapter in this book is called Preaching and Awakening. Ian Murray says, The danger of contrasting our own days with former times is a real one. It is easy to romanticize a past period with which we could compare ourselves and then to judge our deficiencies by conditions that never existed as we imagined them. This admitted, the fact remains that there has been an element present when the gospel has made its swiftest advances in the world. It is notably uncommon today, namely the fear of God. Not only did the experience, but the very words have all disappeared. Yet, its place in scripture is unmistakable. Before the 18th century awakening, as Samuel Blair, a minister of that period, wrote, quote, It was thought that if there were any need of heart distress inside of the soul's danger and fear of divine wrath, it was only needful for the grossest sort of sinners. Instances of conviction of sin, Blair went on to say, had come to be regarded merely as mental depression and as something to be avoided. People were very generally through the land careless at heart and stupidly indifferent about the great concerns of eternity. In New England, Jonathan Edwards spoke similarly of people who regarded hell as nothing but a mere fiction to frighten folks. This general condition changed with the evangelical revival. When Isaac Watts and John Geis wrote a preface to the first edition of Jonathan Edwards' work called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions, in 1737, they noted the transformation in Northampton and observed, quote, Wheresoever God works with power for salvation upon the minds of men, there will be some discoveries of a sense of sin and of the danger of the wrath of God. The same has been true in every real revival. An eyewitness who in 1910 recalled the 1859 revival in Scotland said, quote, Then, the one deep dominant note 
was an overpowering sense of sin. The sense of sin is not found in anything like the same degree today. They were all gray-headed men and women, young men and maidens, weeping and sobbing as if their hearts would break with sorrow. The realization of the presence of the Spirit of God was such as to overawe us so much that we dare not speak except in whispers as we try to point out those in agony of soul to the Savior. That quote is taken from Reminiscences of the Revival of 1859, Aberdeen University Press. Anyway, there is a subject that comes up when we talk about the counseling of the awakened in the old revivals compared to now. And now, if we examine the counsel given to awakened sinners in a bygone day, in our day it is called preparationism. But what is preparationism? In this same chapter is a quote from John Brown Awampray. 1610-1679, and because this is in the public domain, I want to read the whole of it. The entire book can be found at books.google.com, and the full title is called A Mirror, or Looking Glass for Saint and Sinner. The important doctrines of the long gospel opened up in a practical essay from Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Again, if you want to listen to the lectures on revival that I have done, and it's about the fourth time I've taught on a series on revival, it's at a narrated Puritan at sermonaudio.com. This appendix is called What Preparationism Is and What It Is Not. In some sense, he writes, I do not allow preparatory works, and in some sense they are to be admitted. Negatively, I say, one, there are no such natural abilities on unregenerate persons which a man can improve, and which rightly used and improved will certainly prove effectual to the attaining of grace. Number two, there are no such preparations as have any actual influences to produce a work of grace and conversion in the soul. There are no preparatory works that can be properly be said to please God. Number four, nor do we allow such preparations as take off any part of the guilt that is lying on the sinner. Number five, nor do we grant any such preparations or as any part of the work of conversion, as if such were the beginnings of grace. Number six, nor do we acknowledge any such so prepared by the law and humbled in the sense of their sin and guilt, merited grace at God's hands nor grant we any such preparatory works as have a promise of grace made unto them, for there is no such promise. Number nine, nor are there any such preparatory works as have a certain connection with faith and conversion. It is such, and all such as are so, and so preparatorily wrought upon shall certainly be converted. It is true, if we speak of such of whom the Lord is about to bring home in this way, there is secret unseen connection, but that is not because a preparatory work is of that nature that grace must necessarily follow it. But yet on the other hand, we say, speaking of the Lord's bringing home of his chosen ones who are come to age, for as to his children we are strangers therein too and can't understand that. And then he talks about what preparationism is, true preparation, did it scriptural, number one. A man in nature is not only indisposed, but unwilling to receive Christ and his righteousness, 
Number two, that therefore the Lord must prepare them and bring them off to a quiet rest and sleep in a state of sin and unworthiness, to accept that the gospel way of salvation by discovering their lost condition by nature. Number three, and so we say that this is God's usual method of bringing home its own, rationally working upon them, causing them to see their own misery, that they may cry for mercy. Objection. Number one. But cannot God do this without these preparations? I answer. What God may do is needless for us to inquire. It is enough for us to know that thus he doth ordinarily with all persons. Question two. Are not sinners as sinners called to accept and lay hold on Christ and the gospel? It is true. To Christ is offered to sinners as such. But... Though the deadest sinner, the proudest Pharisee, the greatest judiciary, or self-righteous legalist is under obligation to accept of Christ, yet, remaining such, will not accept of Christ and his righteousness, but must first be brought off to false selfish ground they now stand upon, and quit grips of their own righteousness. Objection 3. Can a soul come too soon to Christ? Answer, a soul can never come too soon to Christ, if you speak of time, but a soul can too soon think that they are allowed to lay hold of the comforts of Christ, and so deceive themselves. We can give no allowances to hold back any from coming to Christ, did or willing, but only hereby show what is the Lord's ordinary method, and what must precede a soul's closing with Christ according to the terms of the gospel. Objection 5. It would seem that one is warranted to believe because he is so and so humbled and convinced, not before he has such preparatory works on himself. I answer, to speak properly, seeing necessity gives not a warrant, but has a force of a strong motive, to exert and press a soul to seek help and relief. Question 6. Does the Lord take discourse with all whom he takes by the heart this way? I answer, we dare not set limits to the Holy One of Israel for number one. Some are wrought upon when young, in whom this work cannot much be observed. Number two, some of riper age may be brought in without feeling much of the terrors of the law. The Lord thinks good to deal with them in a sweeter, milder way, overpowering their heart with love and quickly persuading them. Number three, yet all are in some competent measure brought to a conviction of their sin and misery, and they see Christ must help them, or they are gone irrecoverably. I grant that this work be greater in some than in others, but as to those whom the Lord intends to save, whatever method or way he follows, the effect and result is the same, a conviction of the impossibility of life by the law, and a fixed quitting and renouncing of it, an irrational and resolute fleeing to Christ, and resting in him for life and salvation. And a finally a quote by Thomas Scott in the same book, 1747-1821, The offense of the cross, ceasing, leave out the holy character of God, the holy excellence of his law, the holy condemnation to which transgressors are doomed, the holy loveliness of the Savior's character, the holy nature of redemption, 
the holy tendency of Christ's doctrine and the holy tempers and conduct of all true believers then dress up a scheme of religion of this unholy sort, represent mankind in a pitiable condition, rather through misfortune than crime, speak much of Christ's bleeding love to them and of his agonies in the garden and on the cross, without showing the need of the nature of satisfaction for sin, speak of his present glory and of his compassion for poor sinners, of the freeness with which he dispenses pardons, of the privileges which believers enjoy here, and of the happiness and glory reserved for them hereafter. Clog this with nothing about regeneration and sanctification, and represent holiness as somewhat else in conformity to the holy character and law of God. You make up a plausible gospel calculated to humor the pride, soothe the consciences, engage the hearts, and raise the affections of natural men who love nobody but themselves. Letters and Papers of Thomas Scott, 1824 The last quote is from a narrative of many surprising conversions by Jonathan Edwards about those who were awakened in Northampton. Quote, there, there have been some who have not had so great terrors, but have had a very quick work. Some of those who have not had so deep a conviction of these things before their conversion have much more of it afterwards. God has appeared far from limiting himself to any certain method in his proceedings with sinners under legal convictions. In some instances, it seems easy for our reasoning powers to discern the methods of divine wisdom in his dealings with the soul under awakenings. In others, his footsteps cannot be traced and his ways are past finding out. Some who are less distinctly wrought upon in what is preparatory to grace appear no less eminent in gracious experiences afterwards. There is in nothing a greater difference in different persons and with respect to the time of their being under trouble, some but a few days, and others for months or years. There were many in this town who had been before the suffusion of the Spirit upon us for years, and some who, for many years, concerned about their salvation, though probably they were not thoroughly awakened, yet they were concerned to such a degree as to be very uneasy, so as to live an uncomfortable, disquieted life. They continued in a way of taking considerable pains about their salvation but had never obtained any comfortable evidence of a good state. Several such persons in this extraordinary time have received light, but many of them were some of the last. They first saw multitudes of others rejoicing with songs of deliverance in their mouths, who before it seemed wholly careless and at ease, in pursuit of vanity, while they had been bowed down with solicitude about their souls. Yea, some had lived licentiously, and so continued till a little before they were converted, and yet soon grew up to a holy rejoicing in the infinite blessings God had bestowed upon them. Whatever pastor has a like occasion to deal with souls in a flock, under such circumstances as this was in the last year, I cannot but think he will soon find himself under a necessity greatly to insist upon it with them, to God, is under no manner of obligation to show mercy to any natural man whose heart is not turned to God, 
And a man can challenge nothing either in absolute justice or by free promise from anything he does before he is believed on Jesus Christ and has true repentance begun in him. It appears to me that if I had taught those who came to me under trouble any other doctrine, I should have taken a most direct course, utterly to undo them. I should have directly crossed what was plainly the drift of the Spirit of God and his influences upon them. For if they had believed what I said, it would either have promoted self-flattery and carelessness, and so put an end to their awakenings, or cherish and establish their contention and strife with God, concerning his dealings with them and others, and blocked up their way to that humiliation before the sovereign disposer of life and death in which God is likely to prepare them for his consolations. And yet those who have been under awakenings have oftentimes plainly stood in need of being encouraged by being told of the infinite and all-sufficient mercy of God in Christ, and that it is God's manner to succeed diligence and to bless his own means, that so awakenings and encouragements fear and hope may be duly mixed in proportion to preserve their minds in a just medium between the two extremes of self-flattery and despondence, both which tend to slackness and negligence, and in the end, to carnal security.